This morning's Bible reading is taken from Daniel chapter 3, verses 14 to 30. Um, you'll find that in your leaflet, um, and it'll also be on the screen. And Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? Now when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, if you are not... If you are ready to fall down and worship the image I have made, very good. But if you do not worship it, worship it you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, and his attitude towards them changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leapt to his feet in amazement and asked his advisers, Weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, certainly, your majesty. He said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, servants of the most high God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego came out of the fire and the satraps, prefects and governors and royal advisers crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their heads head singed. Their robes were not scorched and there was no smell of fire on them. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in, in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own. Therefore, I decree the people of any nation or language who say anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego will be cut into pieces. Their houses will be turned into piles of rubble, for no other god can save in this way. Then the, god promo then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Morning, everyone. Thanks, Beck, for reading that for us. Uh, if you have uh, an outline or a newsletter or a bulletin, you can uh, follow on the outline in that. Uh, that'd be helpful, I think. Well, in this series from the book of Daniel, we are looking at how we as Christians can live in a society that rejects the living God and his word and seeks to shut him out of his world. 
And this is a situation, of course, that Daniel and his friends faced. They were deported from Jerusalem, taken into exile to a pagan, pluralistic city of Babylon. And they're living with the tension, in the tension of that. How will we maintain our integrity and live out our faith as a people of God in a society that has many gods? How can we be a witness to a world that despises the God of the Bible? Samuel Rutherford, a Presbyterian pastor, once said this, you will not get leave to sneak quietly into heaven in Christ's company without conflict and a cross. You will not get leave to sneak quietly into heaven in Christ's company without conflict or a cross and a cross. In other words, if you're being true to Christ, there will be trouble. You can't avoid it. You can't sort of sneak into heaven without making a stand for a Christ and at times suffering for it. And Daniel and his friends knew that, didn't they? Here in the story we see King Nebuchadnezzar's ego and rebellion against the living God. Look at verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold 60 cubits high and 60 cubits wide and set it up on the plain of Jura in the province of Babylon. Then he summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisers, treasurers, judges, magistrates and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. The statue represents Nebuchadnezzar's pride and is an expression of his rebellion against God. Remember last week in chapter 2, God spoke to him in a, in a dream and sent Daniel to interpret that dream for him. And it was a dream of a statue with a head of gold, but with feet of clay. And from nowhere, a stone comes and smashes that statue into little pieces. And the stone actually grows into a big mountain and fills the whole earth. And God is, is saying something important to Nebuchadnezzar. He's saying, your kingdom will not last. It'll give way to other kingdoms and ultimately to the kingdom of God, which will endure forever. But Nebuchadnezzar does not want to hear this. Why should my kingdom be the kingdom that gives way to another? Why shouldn't my kingdom be the kingdom that endures? And so he rejects the word of God to him and he sets up a statue and notice it is all gold. His defiance of God is obvious, isn't it? Eight times in these verses we hear the phrase, the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. It's the very nature of idolatry, isn't it? That uh, it's something we humans set up. You know, John Calvin once said the human heart is a factory of idols. We actually set them up and we actually are in some ways in control of our idols. Instead of submitting to the word of God through Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar sets up his own reality and calls the whole empire, the officials from the whole empire, to come down and bow down and worship at the statue. It's actually quite a comical scene if you think about it. Nebuchadnezzar is sort of surrounded by princes and governors and treasurers and captains and judges, all the VIPs in all their pomp. There's something farcical about it too, isn't there? It's meant to put a smile on our faces. You know, that still happens today. Think of the pageantry that we see sometimes in, in places like North Korea, celebrating its leaders. 
or the, grad, or the Red Square celebrations in China, or, or even graduation ceremonies at universities, or even the in installation of religious hierarchy. We take ourselves so seriously, don't we? But the one who sits in heaven laughs. That's what God's doing here in this chapter. He's poking fun at Nebuchadnezzar in all his pomp and show and the puny statue that he's built. It happened, of course, before, back in Genesis chapter 11. Humanity united to make a name for themselves, building a tower that reaches to the heavens. And we're told God had to come down and see it. What are these human beings up to now? Building a little tower. It's insignificant. It's laughable. And the same here with this image of gold. Nebuchadnezzar proudly builds in defiance of God. It's the folly of humanity without God, isn't it? Let's have a closer look at the text then. It's, it's difficult to be a Christian in a world that rejects the living God and serves the idols that people set up for themselves. It's very difficult to be a Christian in that context. Think, think for a moment for Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. They're under great pressure to conform, aren't they? Look at verse 5, a herald tells everyone, as soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Alexander Solzhenitsyn wrote a book called The Gulag Archipelago and it's a book that documents the Soviet Union's use of forced labour camps to control and govern its people. And in that book, Solzhenitsyn tells about the, a Communist Party meeting in Moscow that ends with a tribute to Stalin, at which everyone leaps to their feet and starts clapping. This is what he writes. He writes it in, in quite a humorous way. He says, It continued for three minutes, four minutes, five minutes. Arms were getting sore. Older people were exhausted. It was becoming insufferable and insufferably silly, even to those who adored Stalin. However, who would dare stop? After all, the Secret Service police were standing in the hall applauding and watching to see who would quit first. Six minutes, seven minutes, eight minutes, their goose was cooked. They couldn't stop now. Nine minutes, ten minutes. The district leaders were just going to continue applauding till they fell where they stood and were carried out on stretchers. Then after 11 minutes, the director of the paper factory, a strongly independent-minded man, assumed a business-like expression and sat down in his seat. And oh, a miracle took place. Where had the uninhibited enthusiasm gone? To a man, everyone stopped dead and sat down. They'd been saved. The squirrel had been smart enough to jump off his revolving wheel. That, however is how they discovered who the independent people were. That same night, the director of the paper factory was arrested and imprisoned for 10 years. It's crazy, isn't it? Sent to Siberia for 10 years for what? For standing out from the crowd, for being sensible and refusing to conform to madness. And there's a fiery furnace waiting for Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego if they refuse to join in. It's not easy, is it? It's hard to be the only Christian in the workplace or at a sporting club or in your family. There is often such pressure to conform. 
and the pressure often comes from peers. Look at verse 12. Listen to the astrologers reporting Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego to the king. There are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, your majesty. Well, that, that's racism, isn't it? anti-Semitism fueled by sort of envy and hatred because, of course, Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego had been promoted to high office. Why should they have such good top jobs in the empire? They'd just been promoted and they were loyal and hard-working and peace-loving, but they refused to bow down to this idol and all their peers saw it. And, and think of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, the pressure they were under. Everyone was doing it, all their peers... All their colleagues were bowing down. See, if you stand up for your convictions in Australia today, all hell will break loose. Isn't that what happened to Margaret Court? Tolerance is the new religion in Australia. Everyone's opinion is as good as the next person. But if you make a stand on something, if you hold your beliefs exclusively, you're actually in serious trouble. It's amazing how intolerant so-called tolerant people become. Are your peers pressuring you to compromise? Maybe at work or at uni or at school? Are you standing or are you caving under that pressure? It's good to think about that. And then there's the psychological pressure. Look at verse 15. Listen to the king's threat. If you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into the blazing furnace. There's a fiery furnace facing them, isn't it? Isn't there? And they must have been terrified. Nebuchadnezzar was a sort of despot, quite an emotionally driven guy, I think, if you're reading, reading the text. Um, he has absolute power and he's actually enraged by their refusal to bow down. And they knew the brutality that he was capable of. There must have been enormous pressure. Their lives were on their line. Their, their families' lives were probably on the line. Is fear causing you to compromise your faith? You might not be under this sort of pressure, but is it, is it, forcing, is it causing you to compromise? Does fear silence you? Especially when you should be speaking up? Is fear holding you back in your Christian life? Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego might have compromised to save their lives, mightn't they? Remember what Jesus said, whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. Are you ready for that? That's still the challenge of the gospel today, isn't it? It is. In 1977, the Archbishop of Uganda, Janani Lewin, challenged Idi Amin for murdering his own people and told him, Mr. President, what you are doing is wrong in the sight of Almighty God. Idi Amin had him arrested for treason and he was bullied, beaten and shot. Do you think, what about this, do you think there are some things that are worse than death? It's true, isn't it? Many martyrs of history remind us of this. Don Carson writes in his book, How Long, O God? I would rather die than end up unfaithful to my wife. That's a pretty good stand, isn't it? 
I would rather die than deny by a profligate life what I've taught in my books or disown the gospel. God knows there are things in my past of which I'm deeply ashamed. I do not want such shame to be multiplied and bring dishonour to Christ in years to come. There are things, there are worse things than dying. Do you believe that? Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego did. The second thing we see here is that, yes, it's difficult to be a Christian in a society that rejects God and has a different set of values, but we must make a stand by faith. Look at Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego's response, verse 17 and 18. Full of faith, they make a very bold statement, don't they? Trusting God, come what may. Verse 17, if we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. And he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Notice again how polite their response is. Now, some of us might say uh, that the words, but even if he does not deliver us, shows a lapse of faith. Verse 17, they have faith to believe God will... Uh, for a miracle and then in verse 18 that faith sort of wavers and wobbles and falls to a low, lower, lower level but if not but that's exactly wrong misses the point altogether yes we believe God can deliver us from the fire but if he doesn't see their, their, their faith changes gears it doesn't go down it actually ratchets up a notch doesn't it, it goes up but if he doesn't, we will not serve your gods. That's the pinnacle of faith. To trust God even if he doesn't do a miracle. That's not lesser faith, that's greater faith. That's the faith of Job, isn't it? Remember Job? You know, he, was, uh, he lost everything. His family, his health, his wealth, everything. And what did he say? Though he slay me. about This is what he said about God. Though he slay me. Yet I will trust in him. It's a testimony of Joni Erickson. 1967, as a teenager, she broke her neck in a diving accident and became a paraplegic. She's now in her 60s and she's witnessed to God's goodness to thousands of people over a lifetime in public speaking and personally. In her book, A Step Further, she quotes Samuel Rutherford. And this is not on the PowerPoint, so I'll just read this out. There'll be a bit later that... Uh, it will be there. If, and Samuel Rudderson said this, If God had told me some time ago that he was about to make me as happy as I could be in this world and then told me that he should begin by crippling me and removing me from all my usual sources of enjoyment, I should have thought it a very strange way of accomplishing his purpose. And yet how is his wisdom manifest even in this? For if you should see a man shut up in a closed room idolizing a set of lamps and rejoicing in their light, and you wish to make him truly happy, you should begin by blowing out all his lamps and then throwing open the shutters to let in the light of heaven. And Joni says, that's just what God did for me when he sent a broken neck my way. He blew out the lamps of my life, which lit up the here and now and made it so exciting. The dark despair which followed wasn't much fun, but it sure did make what the Bible says about heaven, come alive. One day when Jesus comes back, God is going to throw open heaven's shutters. And there's no doubt in my mind that I'll be fantastically more excited and ready for it than if I was on my feet.
And then on the PowerPoint, you'll read this. You see, suffering gets us ready for heaven. How does it get us ready? It makes us want to go there. Broken necks, broken arms, broken homes, broken hearts. These things crush our illusions that earth can keep its promises. When we come to know that the hopes we cherished will never come true, that our dead loved ones is gone from this life forever, that we will never be as pretty, popular, successful or famous as we once imagined, it lifts our sights. It moves our eyes from this world, which God knows could never satisfy us anyway, and sets them on the life to come. Heaven becomes our passion. That's the kind of faith that Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego have. It's a faith in God that makes a stand against the world and its values. And it becomes actually a very powerful testimony, doesn't it? Think of the impact it had on all the officials of the empire, let alone King Nebuchadnezzar himself. What would they be talking about now? Nebuchadnezzar or his statue? <laughs> Not at all. Look at the end of the chapter. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own. That, that coming from the mouth of the king, the pagan king. They're all talking about the living God. What a powerful testimony. Where are you making a stand and trusting God come what may? It's the sort of testimony the church needs today, doesn't it? Powerful witness to the living God. That's what that expression of faith in God does. What is faith? Chapter, chapter 11 of the book of Hebrews tells us of these great men of faith who stood for God despite opposition. And in chapter 12, it tells us what faith is. It's actually looking to Jesus the author and perfecter of our faith. Faith is looking away from yourself and looking to Jesus. Faith is not the power of positive thinking. That's making faith something in and of itself. That's having faith in faith. Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego have faith in God, faith in the Lord who is able to save them. It's difficult to be a Christian in a society that rejects God and we must make a stand by faith in order to overcome the world. That's the third thing we see in the text. What did Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego um, believe about God? Well, they had complete confidence in his love and in his power. Why? Because they believed God's word. And the whole Bible tells us from cover to cover that God is with his people and strengthens them in trial. God is with us and strengthens us in trial. We see that here in the story. Look at verse 24. Nebuchadnezzar says, Weren't there three men that we tied up and thrown into the fire? Look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar looks into this white-hot fire, and he sees something that is rarely seen but is always true. He saw the Lord with his people in the fire. How do we overcome the world? How do we get strength that we need in any trial? By looking to Jesus. Remember the Apostle John? Rome was persecuting Christians and he's exiled on that island of Patmos and God gives him a vision of Jesus 
the ascended, powerful, glorified Lord. And remember the picture of him in Revelations 1? It's a striking picture. His hair was white as snow. His eyes were like blazing fire. His feet like burnished bronze. You know, what does that mean? He was standing in the furnace. He's with us in the trials of our lives. Remember what he promised? Whenever two or three are gathered together in my name, even if they're bundled up and thrown into the fire, I will be with them. And so the Apostle John says in 1 John chapter 5, Who is it that overcomes the world? Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. The secret to overcoming the world when the pressure's on and you need to make the stand is to look to Jesus. He's with you in the fire. Notice this. God delivers them not from the fire, but in the fire. They're thrown into the furnace. They go through this terrible ordeal and God delivers them in it. And that's a much greater deliverance, isn't it? It's what the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8. He says, in all these things, which things? Well, in trouble and hardship and persecution and nakedness and danger and sword. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. The only thing that was destroyed in the fire were the ropes that bound them. Not even their hair was singed. It's what happens for every true Christian. You go into suffering, hardship and sorrow bound. And you come out of it free. Jesus, who knows suffering, who suffered for us, takes us through suffering to save us from worse things. Pride, selfishness, the idols we're tempted to worship, and an eternity away from him, hell itself. And so faith transforms the threat a reality, and reality of suffering, and it refines us, and it builds greater faith in us, and with it, confidence and hope and glory in our hearts and ultimately eternal life. What a great deliverance. What an amazing deliverance. What a great saviour Jesus is. As Nebuchadnezzar says, praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. No other God can save in this way. Let me finish with a question. Do you need deliverance? You might be here this morning, you're thinking, oh, I need deliverance. Maybe you think that people aren't interested in salvation, but just think about movies and TV series you've seen recently. So many stories are about salvation and deliverance. People are very interested in salvation and deliverance, but they're looking for it in all the wrong places, aren't they? This chapter, in fact, the whole Bible, is about salvation. It's about the God who saves in verse 15, Nebuchadnezzar throws down the gauntlet, doesn't he? When he says, what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? And in the end, he's actually forced to admit, in verse 29, no other God can save in this way. Then Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego is God. Where is salvation found? In the God who walks with us in the fire. Three men were delivered unscathed. Saved completely. We're not told what happened to the fourth man who is like the Son of God. Does he come out unscathed? Well, we know from the New Testament he doesn't. He is the Lamb who was slain for sin, for our sin. 
He suffered the fire of God's judgment on the cross for us so that we might be delivered from it. Do you need deliverance? You're longing to be saved from yourself and the dysfunction of your heart which is set on all the wrong things and separates you from God? Look to Jesus. Walk with him who died for you so that you might live eternally. No other God can save in this way. No other God loves like this. Let him save you and strengthen you to be his witnesses in a hostile world in order that others might be saved for his glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for your love and power in this world. A love and power that has worked in many of our hearts to bring us to a saving knowledge of Jesus. Only you can save completely. Forgive us, Lord, for the times when under pressure we've compromised our faith and not stood with Jesus but denied you. Fill us with your spirit and strengthen us to trust you and stand for you at the office, in the schoolyard, no matter what pressures we face. And so be your witnesses to your saving love and power for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.